0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: So somebody asked me last week, uh, you usually have themes for these conferences, like last year was realizing your potential. Then the year before that, we had a birthday party for the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA. And... um, This year, it's A to Z. And tomorrow, there's more about autism and spectrum disorders. And now we start the Z part, which is a panel on Zika virus. And um, many or most of the disabilities uh, associated with uh, Zika infection Uh, have to do with disabilities. Since our Planning and Advisory Committee, and thank you to all the Planning and Advisory Committee members who are here, recommended on behalf of the regional centers and parents and families that there's a lot of concern about uh, Zika and its various considerations. So we have gotten together a panel of experts And um, we're starting, we're, um, um, I guess we should start with um, obstetrics. And um, we are pleased to have our first member of the panel, Dr. Kirsten Salmin, who's an assistant professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences at the Division of Maternal and Fetal Medicine at UCSF, and Kirsten. Thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you. Thank you uh, very much for the opportunity to um, talk with you all today. Um, It's a real honor to be here. Um, uh, I have no financial disclosures uh, to make. And the sort of three take-home points that I'm hoping to leave you all with in the next 20 minutes or so are seen up on the screen there. So the first is that we know, with the caveat that we never really know anything completely in medicine, but we we know that prenatal Zika virus exposure causes fetal injury. We know that there are considerable challenges in prenatal and um, uh, testing and diagnosis, so identifying an impact on a fetus prenatally is, is quite challenging. And I'm gonna challenge everybody who interacts with pregnant patients or future pregnant patients that our obligations uh, for these patients are to advise, screen and test, uh, support and advocate about the impacts of Zika virus in pregnancy. So a very brief word on background, and you'll hear more about this from the other speakers, but just to get everybody oriented to Zika, if you are like me, um, a year and a half ago, you had never heard of the Zika virus. Um, but in in Brazil, in the... Um, sort of fall of 2015, um, lots of health workers in northeast Brazil started to notice increased rates of microcephaly in newborns which started to get people thinking about what the causes could be, and working backwards, people started to notice that there was this outbreak of Zika virus um, in May of 2015. Zika virus isn't new. It was first identified in 1947 um, in the Zika forest in Uganda, which is why it's called the Zika virus. Um, The first human cases were in the 1950s, and really since the fall of 2015, we've sort of seen Zika virus explode on the scene. Um, And as of today, we have uh, Zika virus transmission in the United States, in Texas, and in Florida. Um, The Zika virus is a mosquito-borne virus. It is in the flavivirus family, and it's similar to dengue, West Nile, yellow fever, Japanese encephalitis. And this similarity is uh, part of why it can be challenging to make a prenatal diagnosis. The primary mode of transmission is by mosquitoes. Um, far and away the most common uh, form of transmission. However, maternal to fetal transmission is also an issue, hence why I'm here. Um, Sexual transmission has also been reported, although is less of a a concern. And then there's also a theoretic concern about transmission via blood transfusion, laboratory exposures and transplants, although there have been vanishingly few reported cases uh, transmitted in those fashions. So as of February 1st, 2017, um, in the United States, um, the numbers of pregnant women with laboratory evidence of Zika virus uh, infection in the States is around 1,400. In U.S. territories, which primarily includes Puerto Rico, which is the biggest area, is about 3,000. We've seen 38 live-born infants in the United States um, with birth defects thought to be attributed to Zika virus and five reported pregnancy losses, although of course that's very hard to, to track pregnancy loss. So transitioning now to how we know that prenatal Zika virus really causes fetal injury. When we think about how we know that something harms a fetus, in the business we sort of think about these shepherds' criteria. And these are seven criteria that were outlined, um, uh, first published in the 1990s, but sort of evolved over time how we know something has an impact on a fetus. Um, And these criteria are what's required. So first, a proven exposure to an agent at a critical time during pregnancy, consistent findings in high quality epidemiologic studies, careful delineation of a clinical case, Rare environmental exposure associated with a rare defect that allows us to make that association. Uh, Teratogenicity in an experimental model. um, We like that, but it's not essential. Um, The association has to make sense biologically, and ideally there's proof in an experimental system that the agent acts in an unaltered state, meaning we actually see that the agent causes problems. So starting with some epidemiologic evidence that Zika virus causes fetal injury, these are sort of the earliest reports out of Brazil, looking at rates of microcephaly um, in their population. And this is sort of what the baseline rates were. And I'll talk about this a little bit later. But microcephaly isn't a new finding. Many fetuses are affected by microcephaly. But these were microcephaly rates in Brazil um, up until 2014, somewhere in the ballpark of 5 to 6 per 100,000. The first reports of autochthonous transmission, meaning spread by mosquitoes in that area, not uh, Um, acquired from travel happened uh, right around here in the spring of 2015 and by the end of 2015 their rates were around 100 per 100,000 and actually were probably closer to 250 per 100,000 so really dramatic uptick in the numbers even if this was just reporting bias it it still is kind of too much to ignore Um, other epidemiologic evidence has come out since that time so these are two papers that were published um, in uh, follow-up to that, Zika outbreak that happened in French Polynesia um, that demonstrated a significant increase in rates of microcephaly after Zika um, Epidemics. So, in that uh, Kaushima's study, the Zika associated risk of microcephaly was estimated to be around 95 per 10,000 versus a baseline of 2 per 10,000. The Bessnard study demonstrated a 14 fold increase in congenital microcephaly and a 31 fold increase in brainstem dysfunction. So, mounting epidemiologic evidence. Um, Moving on to the sort of delineation of clinical cases. So, as this evidence started to come out and people started to published case reports. These findings were what were pretty consistently associated with women who'd been exposed to Zika virus during pregnancy. So microcephaly, cortical brain malformations, so abnormalities of the white matter, um, abnormalities of the posterior fossa and cerebellum, ventriculomegaly or enlargement of those fluid filled spaces in the brain, uh, cranial or intracranial calcifications, ophthalmologic abnormalities, growth restriction and fetal death. Um, and I said I'd speak for a moment about microcephaly. And I think it's important to note that microcephaly by itself is not a new diagnosis. Um, strictly speaking, it means small head. But the real problem is the underlying small brain and abnormal brain structures that result in the smallness. Um, Even still now in the United States and countries that aren't having a lot of Zika problems, the most common causes of microcephaly are genetic abnormalities or differences, infections like uh, CMV is a very common cause of microcephaly, prenatally, um, exposures to things like alcohol and substances, It's defined as having a newborn head circumference greater than two standard deviations below the mean, and again is associated with small brain volume, seizures, intellectual disabilities, cognitive differences, motor disabilities, and behavioral problems. The exact cause of microcephaly probably has more impact on the outcome than the microcephaly itself, and the parts of the brain that are involved are important for exactly what the sort of phenotypic appearances, um, but this entity by itself isn't new. So continuing on with those Shepherd's criteria, the rare exposure, rare effect. Um, we saw lots of clinical evidence and continue to see more clinical evidence that fetuses and newborns among Uh, Mothers living in or traveling to areas where Zika virus was being transmitted have been found to consistently have these findings. And probably most importantly, Zika virus was isolated from tissue from pregnancy losses, amniotic fluid, and newborn serum and urine, as well as CNS tissues. Um, So that association of the rare exposure, rare effect was pretty well established. And in more recent publications, so this is actually from late 2016, um, there's a couple of more compelling st- cases that really sealed the deal on the association between Zika and fetal injury. Um, so this Franca study was a case series that looked at 1,500 cases of reported microcephaly. In other words, um, a delivering clinician reported that the newborn head measurements were not normal. Um, and of those 1,500, 602 had actual evidence of Zika virus. A large number of those actually ended up not being true microcephaly. But there were 600 cases that had evidence of Zika virus. and. And those women who had evidence of Zika virus exposure had newborns with smaller head circumferences, pretty considerably higher first week mortality, so 51 versus 14 per thousand. Many more women reporting rashes during pregnancy, so 60% versus about 20%. And multiple brain abnormalities despite normal head sizes. And I think this is the point that caught many of our attention from a prenatal perspective is that these children seemed to have brain abnormalities even with normal head measurements making it seem like prenatal diagnosis got even more challenging. And then this study by Darajo and colleagues um, was a case control study. So looking at 32 cases of microcephaly and 62 controls with normal head measurements, um, demonstrated an odds ratio for Zika virus exposure of about 55 with a 95% confidence interval between 8.6 and infinity. Um, Before I read the study, I'd never seen an infinite uh, top end of a confidence interval. And then in cases with brain abnormalities, that odds ratio is about 113, meaning there is a very, very, very strong correlation between Zika exposure and these newborn abnormalities. Just for reference, the association between smoking and lung cancer, the odds ratio is somewhere around like 5 or 6 or 8, 10, depending on the study that you read. So this was pretty compelling. Um, and then this is the sort of final large cohort study. Again, looking at Zika positive versus Zika negative infants and, and outcomes, um, and looking sort of at this total adverse infant outcome, which is a composite of many of these things demonstrated that Zika positive women had about a 42% risk of adverse outcomes versus about 5% of unexposed or Zika negative women. Um, the biologic plausibility is also very compelling, um, We know that this exists from other torch infections, so that infectious diseases can cause fetal injury is not a new concept for us. Um, We also know that Zika virus demonstrates neurotropism, meaning the Zika virus is able to attack and does preferentially attack cells of the developing nervous system, so those cells that are normal when infected by Zika virus become abnormal. um, And we've seen this in mouse and primate models. So Shepard's criteria are really met, and as a consequence, we can feel quite confident that Zika virus really does cause fetal injury. Testing and diagnosis is really challenging, so moving on to that second take-home point. Um, the clinical presentation of Zika virus is really tricky. About 20 to 40% of people remember having symptoms. So most are infected and are not, don't recognize that they have symptoms or are totally asymptomatic. It's a mild febrile illness. The maculopapular rash doesn't affect everybody and can go relatively unnoticed. Um, and it looks really similar to lots of other arthropod-borne illnesses. So in areas where dengue is common, it looks a lot like dengue, um, although less severe. So it's easy to go unnoticed. Um, The recommended testing for pregnant women is really complex. So currently, only IgM testing is available. There is no IgG testing. Um, So keeping in mind that IgG is able to tell us longer-term historic exposure versus IgM, which tells us acute exposure. Um, So testing with IgM has to be done really within 12 weeks of exposure, which necessitates knowing when that exposure happened. Um, IgG testing is not available. And there's a pretty considerable overlap with the IgM testing for dengue, chikungunya, other um, similar arthropod-borne illnesses. So women who have a positive IgM test for Zika virus have to have confirmatory testing, which currently is only done by the CDC and takes quite some time to, to do. Um, PCR testing or actual testing for the virus is now available for urine and blood, but, um, does not stay positive indefinitely. And we're still really trying to understand how long it is able to stay positive or definitely stays positive. Um, Amniocentesis, or taking fluid from around the fetus and testing for Zika virus, is an option, um, but we really don't have a great sense of false positive and false negative rates. False positive is probably quite unlikely. Um, however, a positive test in a mother or a positive test in a fetus doesn't then guarantee translation to an affected fetus. So, an infected mother and fetus doesn't necessarily mean that that child is affected by the Zika virus, and we don't really know the conditions under which that's the case. There are a lot of kind of complicated algorithms. The CDC has done a good job of keeping us up to date, but presently what we recommend is that symptomatic pregnant women who have been exposed get PCR testing up to two weeks after their symptom onset. Asymptomatic pregnant women who have been exposed, which means either traveling to an area where Zika virus has been transmitted or um, having unexposed sex with a person who's traveled to an area where Zika virus is transmitted, are recommended to have anti-IgM testing uh, between 2 and 12 weeks after the last date of possible exposure, and then PCR testing within 2 weeks. Um, Women who have negative PCR but who have a positive IGM have to have their blood sent to the CDC for confirmatory testing. So it's a process that takes quite some time. We do use ultrasound and especially in very highly developed areas where we have lots of access to ultrasound. We do ultrasounds to monitor and evaluate. Um, We do serial ultrasounds over the course of the third trimester to watch. Um, But again, only some Zika virus affected fetuses have ultrasound findings and non-Zika virus-affected fetuses may have abnormal ultrasounds, so we can't be certain with ultrasound that what we're seeing is Zika-related, and we can't be certain that a fetus that has a normal-appearing ultrasound wasn't affected by Zika virus. And the ultrasound findings can be quite subtle. Microcephaly is a little bit of a... a, challenging diagnosis. We suspect it when the fetal head measurements are less than two standard deviations below the mean for gestational age. Um, We diagnose it definitively when the size is more than four to five standard deviations below the mean. But fetal head measurements are a little bit subjective. They're very dependent on maternal habitus, how well we're able to see the position of the fetus. So Although we can be quite certain when there's profound microcephaly, it's hard to be certain when there is a small degree. And then the other abnormalities there are variable in terms of how easy they are to see. Fetal brain MRI is a tool with great potential, but is really only available in very high resourced places with a very subspecialized care. So really isn't ubiquitously available. We do it here and a couple of other centers in the United States and around the world, but it's not particularly accessible. So lastly, the you know, final point here is that as healthcare providers, I think our role at this point are to advise, screen and test, support, and then advocate. So I think that we really should be advising pregnant women and those who are planning a pregnancy to try and avoid areas where Zika virus is being transmitted. If uh, travel is not, if avoiding travel is not an option, uh, the recommendation is to use FDA approved mosquito repellents, protective clothing, staying indoors when possible. Um, Condom use, if a partner has traveled, is recommended um, really for a pregnant woman throughout the entirety of her pregnancy. Um, We strongly suggest contraception for those who are not wanting to conceive, which is a big problem in some of the parts of the world where Zika virus is being transmitted really actively. The current recommendation is that women wait at least eight weeks after um, a potential exposure to try and conceive. Um, Although there's a very, very, very recent paper in the New England Journal that suggests that may need to be expanded a little bit longer. Um, And then for male partners, the recommendation is to wait at least six months before trying to conceive because Zika virus has been identified in semen for up to six months after an exposure. Um, Yeah, it's a long time. That doesn't mean you can't have sex for six months. It just means you shouldn't get pregnant for six months. Um, so screening, uh, screening and testing. Um, so screening for exposure, and this is a big deal within our prenatal populations, and it's interesting. Zika's not really in the paper anymore. It's not on TV. Too many other things on TV right now. Um <laughs> Uh, So it sort of has fallen off the radar, and patients are becoming a lot more lackadaisical about travel, so we really feel like it's our job to continue to uh, advise women about avoiding travel and unprotected sex using those um, testing algorithms and then considering an electronic health record, which is what we've done in our practice, to trigger questions about travel so we know who to screen. From a support perspective, I think we spend the vast majority of our time reassuring the worried, well, you know, those numbers in the beginning say that there's really still quite Infrequent cases in the United States, but um, being thoughtful about who were who were counseling how. For those women who are at high risk for fetal infection, so women who test positive or who have ultrasound findings, um, you know. Providing really patient preference-centered counseling is very, very important. Talking about the lack of predictability of the impacts of Zika, the potential for a broad range of outcomes, the challenges with knowing how this looks in the long term, because this is still relatively new, all need to factor into this discussion. Um, For those who are choosing expectant management, we recommend serial ultrasounds, antenatal testing, and then providing resources, counseling, and support. This perhaps is an audience that can tell me a lot more about that than I can uh, speak to. And then for those families who make the decision to consider pregnancy termination, providing those uh, support services and options when appropriate. And then sort of last but not least, I think it's our obligation to really advocate, Um, advocating for vaccine development, for vector control, for education, for family planning, for surveillance, for support. Um, We are sort of the people who carry the torch for trying to advocate for the patients who are being affected by this. Um, I think we're obliged to advocate from a policy perspective, so advocating for the importance of family planning services. Um, There's some evidence that up to half of reproductive-aged women in Brazil are at least trying to avoid pregnancy right now because of Zika virus. But contraceptive services in that area are really limited. Um, Vector control strategies. Then advocating for uh, strategies to really stay up to date. This is changing very quickly, and staying up to speed is really important. So to conclude my portion here, again, prenatal Zika virus exposure causes fetal injury. We're nearly certain of that. Um, prenatal testing and diagnosis is really challenging. And I think our roles are advising testing and screening support and advocate. Um, And I think that there's a bunch that we still really don't know. So we really don't know the probability of an affected fetus and an infected mother. Um, That's still really we need to learn a lot about. Um, We really don't know about the long-term implications for these children. We don't know about ameliorating or exacerbating factors. It still seems unusual that this is mostly in northeast Brazil where the most significant impacts are. Um, And we really don't know the kind of economic, social, and other consequences. So I think that that's sort of more to come. So I'll wrap up with that and pass on to my next uh, next panelist. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast
1: by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.